You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to begin reading with verse 39. Found their place, John 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We look to You, O Father, in this hour. We look to You to do a work in our hearts, to work by way of Your Holy Spirit, that He would open our hearts, which are often quite stubborn and cold. We would open our hearts to receive this morning, that You would open our hearts to see, that, Father, You would work by way of our will, which can often be obstinate, you would work, O Father, in all of our faculties, O Father, for your glory. And help us, O Father, to drink deeply from this text. Teach us, O Father, that which each of us needs to know this morning, needs to learn this morning, needs to apply this morning. We're all in different places, Lord. So, Father, we pray that you would do this marvelous work through your word. May we hear your majestic voice as we, as we study. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I had a seminary professor that um, was just was, he was just out, absolutely outstanding, so blessed to be able to have studied under him. His name's Dr. Jonathan Watt. And um, he once said, and I've shared with this, I've shared with with you this uh, on a number of occasions that learning is like painting a wall. If you put too much on the wall at one time, what happens? It all runs to the floor. So it's best to, you know, we learn in layers. And and um, I'm taking his advice and his instruction every time I review uh, Scripture, just in case anybody's wondering. Sometimes you'd be like, well, we've gone over some of this stuff a lot of times. Yeah, that's on purpose. Um, because what we're trying to do is put another coat on the wall. And I always try to share something new each time we do a review. And here this morning, we find ourselves at the end of a discourse, a response, if you will, Jesus responding to some charges that have been brought to him. And this particular passage especially requires that we continue to go over it and over it and over it. It's a dense passage of Scripture, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I'm going to reserve all complete judgment until we've gone all the way through John's gospel, but 
I think this might be one of the most difficult passages uh, in John's Gospel. There will be a few others, but uh, this has been certainly a challenge to study. I am so thankful for the wonderful opportunity to have been able to spend the time that I've been able to spend in this marvelous passage. And in verse 18, we see the charges that Jesus' opponents are bringing against Jesus. They're calling him a Sabbath breaker, and they're calling him a blasphemer. Blasphemy because he's making himself out to be equal with God. And we can divide verses 19 through 47, which is essentially Jesus' response to these charges. We can divide it into three pieces, if you will. We've studied the first two pieces. And in the first piece, uh, Jesus speaks really both to Sabbath-breaking and to this charge of making himself equal to God. And what has he said? He, he has said in verse 19 that he does what he sees the Father doing. Uh, he first points us to this mysterious unity that Jesus has with the Father, that the Son has with the Father. The Son is so unified with the Father that uh, what Jesus does is precisely the exact same thing that the Father is doing. In other words, they're always in concert together. They're always in this perfect unity together. This is a difficult subject for us to grasp because we are hardly unified in anything. In fact, we, uh, we know very little about unity, don't we? I know when I, when I started working for the county, one of the things I was amazed about is the homes that have been built, especially from, say, 2000 and newer, that do not even have a sidewalk to the front door. I'm amazed, home after home after home after home, there is no sidewalk. There's really no entry to the front door. you got a marvelous-looking front door and a porch, but there's no sidewalk that would take you from the driveway. You, you literally would have to wade through the yard uh, to get there. Now, what, what, what's up with that? Well, it, it, people pull in their driveways and they hit that little button that's on the visor of their, of their uh, I might be dating myself a little bit, ours is on the visor of our, <laughs> our little button for the door opener. I mean, some have them built in their cars now. Um, push the button, the door opens, in you go and you shut yourself off from the world. Um, unity is not something we really know much about because we are so bent on individualism. And Jesus is here. Here He is showing us this marvelous unity that it, the Son has with the Father. So to the first charge of Sabbath breaking, listen, if uh, you guys think I'm breaking the Sabbath, well, then you, you might as well ascribe that to the Father as well because what I'm doing is what the Father is doing. And in terms of making himself out to be equal with God, that is exactly what he is doing because he goes on to say that he does only what he sees the Father doing. And uh, the Father loves him and shows him all that he himself is doing. And we've dwelt on that a couple of times, and I don't think you'll mind if we do it again because it so speaks right now to what we're going through as a nation. 
as we look at all of the things that are happening right now, we really are standing in many ways in a kind of tinderbox, if you will. There are so many things going on, and there are some really uh, strong uh, opinions about things that are diametrically opposed. And in the midst of that here, we've had an election how many days ago, and we still don't have that resolved. And it's indicative of the fact that the United States continues to become more and more divided, which again speaks to how little we know of unity, doesn't it? We continue to become more and more and more divided. And here Jesus is saying, listen, I can see everything the Father is doing. So in other words, what all we would be able to see, as I've said a couple of times in John chapter 5 at the beginning, when Jesus heals an invalid, what would we see? We'd see, well, here comes Jesus wonderfully alleviating suffering. But that's not what Jesus sees. Jesus sees exactly what the Father is up to with this healing. Yes, they're alleviating suffering, but there's a purpose. He's revealing heartless, lifeless, Christless religion. We've been over that several times. And this same pattern, this same thing could be applied to every event uh, in history. Uh, every event, including this virus that we're going through, including the election that we're in the midst of, including all of the various events. And we could look at it on a big scale in terms of how it affects our nation. We could look at it on a small scale and what we're going through in family life. Some of us are going through some difficulties in our family life. Jesus can see everything that the Father is doing in every one of these situations. And not only can he see, he tells us that whatever the Father does, the Son does. So in other words, he's not only able to see all these things, he's also able to do all these things. So he's equal in power. He's equal in power. And he tells us that, he's, that in him is life as the Father raises the dead in verse 21, so the Son gives life to whom he will. He tells us that He is the one who will come back in judgment, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He tells us that, the, that all may honor the Son, and we are to honor the Son just as we are uh, honor the Father. So Jesus is not only equal in power with the Father, He's equal in glory with the Father. So our catechism says that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in power and equal in glory. And in verse 24, Jesus shows us that He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In verse 25, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And as I said uh, last time, that is, that is speaking of conversion. That is speaking of regeneration. That is speaking of what we pray, what we just got done praying for. What have we been praying for? That the Lord will open up hearts and open up eyes, that the Lord will convert, even convert those who are bent on evil right now, trying to establish and expand evil agendas. We pray that the Lord would be pleased to save them. They would be pleased to, to convert them because they're a they're, they're living, they're breathing, but their souls are dead in the respect that they're spiritually dead. We pray that they will hear the voice of the Son of God. How does that work? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working in unity, working in concert, 
Father sending the Son, the Son accomplishing salvation, the Holy Spirit opening up the heart, opening up the eyes to behold, opening up the ears to hear, opening up the heart uh, to be able to respond. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment. Verse 29, and verse 28 and 29, do not marvel. An hour is coming when all who in the tombs will hear His voice and come, come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's why we pray for people who are bent on evil to come to salvation. Um, it's easy. It would be easy for us to hate them. We can't do that. We can't do that. We have to resist that. We need to pray for their salvation because there is a judgment coming. In verse 29, the resurrection of life for those who are in Christ and the resurrection of judgment for those who have been bent on evil. Uh, and it's an eternal judgment. It's a judgment that will have no end. Uh, so there Jesus is very positively uh, making it clear that he is equal with the Father, isn't he? And in verses really 31 and on, Jesus speaks about a witness. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. You know, this morning as I was meditating just on this chapter, preparing for this morning. You know, in verse 31, it just it occurred to me, you know, I want to give you another twist on verse 31, not to, to take anything away from what's already been said on verse 31. And remember, I mentioned last week that verse 31 needs to be kept with care. Uh, the old preachers and the ancient preachers actually warned, uh, be very careful with verse 31, because what Jesus is not saying is that by simply speaking, his testimony is not true without witnesses. Let's think of the context here. If Jesus is equal with the Father, then what he says is what? It's God's Word. Does God's Word require a witness? The answer is no. And Jesus says as much in John 8, 14. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. He says there, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. So that's not what he means. But here's something, here's something to think about. Um, this hit me this morning. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus doesn't bear witness by himself, ever, does he? Because his words are whose? His words are the Father's. So simply as he reveals, simply as he speaks, simply as he teaches, he's never by himself. Because he's in perfect union with the Father, isn't he? And that's what he says in verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me. In other words, as you hear me, you're hearing another. Jesus would tell the disciples in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How is that? Because Jesus is so in union with the Father. He says, no, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears is true. Namely, this is the witness of the Father. And last week, as we were looking at this, Jesus makes makes these huge claims in verses 19 through 30. And then in verses 31 and 31 through 39, he is now um, bringing in witnesses to what he has said. And he said there, he says in verse 32, there's one who bears witness about me. That is the Father. 
And I think the way is best to understand this is that the Father bears witness in three ways. He bears witness through the ministry of John the Baptist. And if you look at verse 34, he says, or verse 33, you sent to John and he bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. So there is the ministry of John the Baptist, which was an extraordinary ministry, wasn't it? People came out in groves to receive baptism and to hear John preach. But then Jesus says in verse 36, not the testimony that I have, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So it seems to me that Jesus is going from a lesser to a greater argument, which Jesus often does in his argumentation. Uh, Not to diminish John the Baptist's witness, for it's extraordinary, but it's lesser than the second witness that Jesus mentions, and that is the works that the Father has given Jesus to accomplish, one of which they have just seen at Bethesda, where he heals an invalid, a man who had been invalid for 38 years. And what do they come from that? He's breaking the Sabbath? And, you know, as I've said before, what, should he... Is this such a common, ordinary thing to do that, you know, um, can you just do it any day you want? Can anybody just stroll in and do it any time they want? Um, it's, it's practically uh, ridiculous that they make this charge. But what Jesus is saying here is that these works that the Father has given him to do bear witness to him and that these works are, are greater. The witness of John the Baptist was great, but the works that Jesus has come to do and accomplish are greater, are greater. And I I don't think we should just think of the miracles here. I think we should also think of the teaching. We should think of the compassion of Jesus. We should think of the person and ministry of Jesus. We should think of every uh, every facility of Jesus' earthly ministry here. And then in verse 39, we see a third witness. And if this is being argued from less to greater, it's the greatest of the three. And that is the witness of the Scriptures. Jesus says there, you search the Scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So uh, Jesus actually in that sentence and in that statement is um, speaking to something that was going on quite commonly. And the whole idea is and was said and was believed that if you had the Torah or if you had the law, if you will, you had salvation. Has anybody ever heard that before? Once in a while, you, you may come across somebody that still believes that. There are certainly people who do believe that. Um, and it, it's a corrupt statement. It's an, er, it's an erroneous statement. It's, a, it's actually a satanic statement in many ways because it misleads you. I mean, it's not the way to life. It's not the way to heaven. That's why I would call it demonic or satanic, because it's tempting to lead people away from eternal life. The thing about that statement is there's, there's enough in it that might, believe you, might lead you to believe that there's some truth to it. And that's the way Satan often works, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't usually make these real bold statements that are blatantly false until he's just about done. No, he usually starts with, with subtle statements, you know? 
Listen, if you have a, I mean, he could take the Bible and he could encourage us. Listen, if you have this Bible, you know, you, if you just have this Bible, you can have life. Man, that sounds pretty good, don't it? If you just had this Bible, you could have life. Don't that sound pretty good on the surface of it? Oh, if you had this Bible, you could have life. And there's some truth to it. Um, you know, I was thinking of how to illustrate this. And, you know, it, you know, years ago when I used to go out to Columbiana County Jail every other Sunday, and I, I think I maybe, and I've shared, I think I've shared this with you before. I know I've shared it with many of you privately. But I think maybe I'd been out there maybe six months or a year. I don't recall. But one of the officers out there, as I was, as I was leaving one, one day, called me aside and said, I want to show you some statistics. Oh, okay. He goes, these are the behavioral statistics of the inmates who have been attending your services. And I think I'd maybe been out there a year. I've been out there at least six months because it seemed it was about six months worth. And you could see the behavior of the inmates prior to coming to the services. Now, I was doing services every other, week, every other Sunday out there. And there was a remarkable difference in the behavior between those two time periods, namely prior to coming to the services and then after they had made a commitment and come to the services for a period of time. Now, at the time, that surprised me. It shouldn't have surprised me, but it did surprise me at the time. I thought it was remarkable. I didn't think that these inmates had come to salvation. I, I didn't think that. I was starting to get to know uh, many of them, and I knew better. Uh, I do believe that a few of them did. And it's hard to say this time. I mean, it's been years now, 16 years, I think, since I did my last service out there. And I'd like to think that the Lord used all those seeds to bring others to salvation. But we did clearly see a difference in behavior. Now, what do we, what do we ascribe that to? The restraining grace of God's Word. If you take, and this is, this is the way the Jews would look at it, if you take a society that has God's Word sewn into the fabric of it, even if it's only believed nominally like Christianity in America for the last probably 75 years, that nation is going to look altogether different than a nation who has, knows nothing of God's Word. And it could lead someone into believing, listen, if you've got the oracles of God, you've got life. Now, we could say that very same sentence and it'd be 100% true. If you've got the oracles of God, you've got life, providing that you've got the centerpiece of the oracles of God. If it's understood that you've got the pearl of great price, of which the oracles of God all speak, then it's a 100% true statement. Do you see how subtle that is? But if you miss the last part, namely that the Scriptures bear witness to Christ, if you miss that, you miss heaven. This, this, is the, this, this, little, this might sound like a small semantic distinction. The grammarian might say it is. But yet it's a difference between life and paradise and life and hell for eternity. That's not a small thing, is it? 
Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These guys knew their Bibles. They studied their Bibles. Uh, they, they had a commitment to studying the Word. And here they are, wanting to kill. He of whom the Word speaks. That's kind of scary, isn't it? We could love theology and not love Jesus. It's pretty scary. Jesus says in verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You search the Scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, verse 40 is a companion verse to verse 25. In verse 40, I'm so thankful for verse 40 because uh, a week ago Wednesday, I was speaking about a doctrine that could be developed in verse 25, namely the doctrine of the, of the decree of God. You guys, some of you remember that? Uh, spend a little time with the decrees of God. What are the decrees of God? You all got that memorized. Question number seven, right? Everybody's got that memorized. I'm sure you worked on that. You put the turkey aside and you got to question number seven, didn't you? Uh, no doubt in my mind. It's, it, it, the, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose, right? According to the counsel of His own will. Wherefore, by for His own glory, He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, right? Now, if you think that through for a minute, does that mean that God has foreordained everything that happens? Yes. Is God working in everything that's happening? Yes. What about salvation? Is, what about doctrines like predestination? Yes. Election? Yes. Does that mean that, like, um, there's nothing that I can do? Does that mean, like, if my life is, if my, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then fine and dandy, I'm going to heaven, but if my name isn't written in the life, in the Lamb's Book of Life, then that means there's just nothing I can do? Is that, is that how we're supposed to look at this? No. No. Some people, a lot of people hate the doctrine of predestination. A lot of people in the church hate the doctrine of election because they think that what that means is, or what we're teaching by that is a form of fatalism, that okay, it doesn't matter what you do. There's nothing you can do. God has either chosen you or hasn't chosen you. So there's really nothing that you can do. And that's not what we teach. That's not what I teach. I hope that's not what you understand me to be teaching. And if we take verse 40, and we take verse 25, and we put them to... See, these two are perfect bookends to this doctrine. They're perfect bookends. They're perfect companions. Because they teach the whole story. In verse 25, we learn that left to ourselves... We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, what can we do dead in our sins and trespasses where it concerns God? We can't do anything. Okay, that's the sovereignty of God part of it. We pray for God to save souls. Souls of people who are committing evil. Souls of people that we love. Souls of people that are all around us. Why? Because of verse 29. There's a time of judgment coming, right? There's a time of judgment coming. And in our prayer life, we understand that if they're going to get saved, God is going to have to intervene in their lives and save them. We understand that, that God is sovereign on this. 
But a lot of people let go of it, practically speaking. They completely let go of it as if these people can save themselves. They can't. Now, this is the, this is the, this is the sovereignty part of it. Now when we come to verse 40, we could ask a question here that verse 40 answers. Why are these guys not coming to Jesus? I mean, they've just, they've just, they see the invalid walking around carrying his mat. He's the guy that they gave bread to last week. He, in fact, of the matter, he's the guy that we've been sending meals on wheels down there for 38 years. Now he's running around carrying his mat looking for a job. Now after that, wouldn't you think they would believe? Wouldn't you think that would be enough? And besides that, you have the teaching of Jesus. You have these miracles. You have the ministry of John the Baptist. You have the scriptures. You have all these things. Why won't they believe? And the answer is right there in verse 40. They will not believe because they refuse to believe. It's not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of witness. It's not for lack of testimony. It's a willful refusal to come. In verse 41, verse 41 seems to come out of nowhere. You know, Jesus, you know, you can see the relationship between verses 39 and 40. You know, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Then verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. You know, I was reading a commentary uh, from uh, one of my heroes of the past, J.C. Ryle. Some of you are familiar with J.C. Ryle, and you read his books, and you love J.C. Ryle's writings. And J.C. Ryle was like, he, he was trying to find the relationship, how verse 41 relates with the rest. And he kind of threw his arms out, and he speculated. And um, i, I got to say this morning as I was going through this, I, I think this hit me as well. I think verse 41 makes sense, and I'll tell you why I think it makes sense. Jesus knows the heart, doesn't he? In fact, he comes out and says uh, in verse 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That takes us back to John 2, 23, 24, and 25. We've made many trips back there. Let's make one more. Well, I shouldn't say one more because we're probably going to make who knows how many more before this is over. But in 2, 23, 24, and 25, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and many believe in his name because he's doing all these signs. He's doing all these miraculous works. And verse 24, Jesus on his part does not entrust himself to them because he knows them. And verse 25, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? Jesus doesn't need. See, we require another person to say how they feel, to say where they're at in terms of their convictions, to say where they're at in terms of their belief, because I can't look at Shine and just by looking at him tell what he believes or what he, what he thinks or what's going through his mind. He may have certain body language at times that gives us some clues. His mama probably knows a better idea than I would. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't know. But Jesus could look at him, or he could look at Tammy, or he could look at Laura. He could look at any one of us and know exactly where we're at, couldn't he? And I think it's this. I think that's where verse 41 is coming from. He says, you, he says I don't receive glory from people. 
What's Jesus doing? He's contrasting himself with those who refuse to come to him. He said, listen, it's almost like he's looking at them and he's reading their hearts, and that's the part we don't have written down. That's the part that causes us to say, wait a second, you lost me, Lord, because there's a step in between that Jesus is reading as he's looking at their hearts, and as he's looking at their hearts, he's saying, boy, you guys love the praise of men. And he says, basically saying to them, listen, I'm nothing like you are. I don't receive glory from people. In other words, I don't labor to put on a show. I don't labor so that I can be seen by other people. I'm not out here to draw a crowd. I'm not out here to be popular. I'm here to please my Father. So he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Verse 43 is really interesting. And verse 43 extends to us from the mouth of Christ a spiritual principle that we do well to drink in and remember always. And that is, if we will not believe in God through Christ, then we will believe anything but that. Because Jesus is saying, listen, you won't believe me. You know, in verses 24, 25 and following, I'm telling you I'm the Messiah, but you won't believe I'm the Messiah. But if Ernie down the road, down the street, who's all half off his rocker says he's the Messiah, you'll gather around him. Practical application of this is we won't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but we'll believe the absurdity that it created itself. Has anyone ever thought about how absolutely absurd that is, that something is complex? We don't believe that the lights will come on without the power company, but we'll believe this whole thing will come on without, uh, without, any, uh, without any exterior help. Isn't that amazing that we would believe that? You see, if we won't believe the truth, we actually will believe something is absurd that is all of this could actually not only come into existence by itself, but could maintain itself. If it came into existence by itself, that's a big enough stretch. But how in the world does it maintain itself? You see, we'll, we'll believe all kind of stuff. We'll just believe all kind of stuff. And that's what he's saying to him. I've come in my Father's name, but you don't receive me. And your judgment is this. You're going to believe in every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes down the street that says he's a Messiah. That's going to be your judgment for not believing in me. You're going to chase after all these false messiahs. And that's what they do. And the ancient historians tell us that a whole string of messiahs were around at this time up until about the destruction of the temple, which would have been about 70 A.D. Uh, the SV Study Bible has a footnote to that effect in it. No. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I can remember reading this verse a long time ago and really being struck by this verse. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I think it's perhaps maybe one of the clearest verses in this whole thing. At least it was for me. How can you believe when you receive glory from another? What does that mean? 
In other words, how can we how can we be believers when we're in it for the praise of other people? A real practical illustration of that that I think illustrates the, the, the truth of it is how can we believe verse 29, namely that there's a judgment coming and those who are not in Christ are going to be sentenced to hell forever. How can we believe that? How can we truly believe that whenever we are consumed with the praise of other people? The fact is we can't because here's what will happen. When we go to share that news with other people, as soon as we get some kind of inkling that if we continue with sharing this, that they're not going to approve of us, then we're going to abort it. We're going to act like it's not true, and we're going to try to water it down, or we're going to try to skip over it altogether, or we're just going to preach the benefits of salvation so that we do not lose the approval of the person that we're speaking to. Does that make sense? In other words, we're going to chicken out. Why do we chicken out? Is there anybody in the room who's never chickened out? I can remember standing in a store, and, you know, the store was empty. There were only two people, and it was me and Tammy and two people, and I'm thinking, I want to share the gospel with these people. And I remember pacing patterns in the floor, and you know what? When it was all said and done, I left that store and never said a word. Why? Verse 44, I chickened out. Why did I chicken out? I guess I have to admit and confess before you all because I desired the approval of these two strangers more than the approval of God. Is anybody with me? Has anybody ever, ever had that experience? And in that moment, how can we say to really believe this? If the building was on fire, I wouldn't have had any problems telling them, hey, you better get out of here. I'd believe that. I walked out of that store and didn't say nothing. Jesus is saying to them, saying to us, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You see, the glory that comes from God wasn't enough. What I wanted was the glory that would come from these strangers who didn't give me probably two thoughts that whole day. Jesus says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If it's believed that he who has the Torah has life, then what, do we, what conclusion have we come from the Torah? The Torah being the law of God. If we said, okay, he who has the Ten Commandments has life, what would be our conclusion of the Ten Commandments? That the Ten Commandments give life? Does anybody here believe that the Ten Commandments give life? Thankfully not. What do the Ten Commandments do? They show us what we are, don't they? You shall have no other gods before me. That includes the God of self-approval, the, the God of approval from others. Boy, that, that one's a big one. That's a big idol in our culture, isn't it? That, that God of approval, that we want the approval of those people that are around us. Shall have no other gods. That's just the first commandment. Now we've already followed. When the last commandment is don't covet. Nah, I don't need to develop that, do I? 
And guess what? We've broken everyone in between. That's what the law teaches us. And that's why Jesus can say, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. In other words, this law that you have, that law, that very law is accusing you. Jesus is saying, in the judgment, I don't have to do anything because the law is going to do it all. And then verse 46 and 47, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Where does the writings of Moses come from? Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write. Incidentally, Jesus is referring to the first five books as the writings of Moses. Modern academia is not willing to do that. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I got a, a book that has been really helpful to me in many, many ways, written by a conservative author. I do not have volume one. I only have volume two on Genesis. And I, he probably offers an explanation maybe in his introduction. I don't have his introduction. But one of the annoying things I find by this author is the fact that he continually refers to the author, the unnamed person who authors Genesis. I'm like, well, you, why won't you just say it's Moses? Because Jesus had no problem doing so. Jesus had no problem saying it. But where do these writings come from? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write. Is the Holy Spirit operating out there on his own? We haven't talked much about the Holy Spirit, but what is true of the, Holy, of the Son is true of the Holy Spirit. They operate in concert. Here we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Father decreeing all that comes to pass through the Word, the eternal Word, who is the Son, John 1, and it is applied and, 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 and it, is, it is established by the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus could almost say, listen, if you don't believe my words in Moses' writings, you're not going to believe my words here, uh, here on this, uh, uh, wherever they're speaking. You're not going to believe me now either. What has to happen? Well, what has to happen is we have to reach a point where um, these obstacles that are in our way that keeps us from coming to Jesus, they have to be, they have to be broken down. Nobody comes to Jesus until they realize, until they recognize that their happiness and welfare is best served by submitting and surrendering their life to Christ. Am I right about that? I mean, think about that. Why have you come to Christ? It's because you believe that this is the best thing to do, isn't it? I mean, hands down. And that's what has to happen. Currently, what they believe is running around seeking the world's approval is better than seeking the approval of God. And you see, that, that, is, that is what's undergirding this whole thing. And it's still that way at this very hour now, isn't it? Why won't people come to Jesus? You know, this past week I've meditated on this, and I've actually mourned over this more than I can remember mourning over this in quite some time. 
But I'm just mourning over the fact that why do we treat Jesus? And when I say we, I say we as a society. Why do we treat Jesus so bad? We reserve some of the sharpest curse words for his holy name in our culture, don't we? Why is it that we treat him so bad? It's because we believe that clinging on to this world, what we can see here and now is the very best thing for us. But he reminds us, he reminds us it's all a lie. And we don't want to give it up. We don't want to give it up. So we curse him. That's who Jesus came to save. A bunch of people that think like that. He didn't come to save a bunch of nice guys and gals. No offense to all of you. I happen to think you're all wonderful. But you know what I mean by that, don't you? What in the world are we? This is, we're monsters. Without the Lord's intervention in our hearts and in our lives, we would just curse him as soon as do anything. But this is what he has come to. This is what he could. And, and we begin in the season of Advent this morning. You know, save that announcement for right now. This is what Jesus has come. This is what Jesus has come to save. What wondrous grace is that? We can never taste of that grace either until we begin to taste of what we really are. But let's not leave on that note because Jesus is not going to leave us as what we are, is he? It would do us a lot of good this afternoon to think about where Jesus is taking us. Where is he taking us? How blessed are we to still not be in that world thinking that that is the way to go? How blessed are we to have our eyes open and to see the deceitfulness of sin, to see the deceitfulness of this world and its ways, and to see the righteousness and the richness and the beauty and the splendor of Christ Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, oh, Father, for eyes to see and ears to hear, Oh, Father, we see why it is that we don't come to you in our unbelief. It's not because there's a lack of evidence. It's not because there's a lack of witness or testimony or revelation. But Father, you gave us the ministry of John the Baptist, which we weren't around for. You performed all these miracles, which we didn't see, but I believe your greatest testimony is the Scriptures, which we all have in our hands. And here, there are more Bibles in the United States than anywhere else in the world. Oh, Father, for one of eyes to see and ears to hear, oh, Lord, we believe that this world and its ways are in our best interest. Oh, Father, how blessed we are this morning, Father, to have been awakened from that. How blessed we are, oh, Father, to be turned from that. How blessed we are, oh, Father, that you intervene in our lives and that you open up our eyes and open up our ears to see that you are in our best interest. And, oh, Father, we have all succumbed. We have all succumbed to that idol of approval of others. We have all succumbed to these things on countless occasions. 
Father, we ask that you forgive us for these things. And we pray, O oh, Father, that you would fill us with a boldness. Fill us, O oh, Father, with the truths that are in these wonderful passages. We have all the witness that we could ask for in these passages. We have all kinds of truths in terms of your person in these passages. And we have this conclusion, this indictment against all unbelief. But we also have the wonder. We have the wonder of salvation in these passages. We have the wonder, the wonder of the new heavens and the new earth in these, in these passages. And we, we see in these, in these passages, Father, the great things that you are doing and have done and promised to do for your people. And Father, we pray, O oh Lord, that you help us to set our sights and set our minds on these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.